I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31, as we make our way through this book, considering uh, the story of the life of Jacob, uh, we, will, uh, come, we come to this chapter in which he makes an escape from his uncle Laban, if I were to uh, give a title to my sermons, which I typically don't, but if I were to, I would title this sermon, The Great Escape, Part 1. Because it's a long chapter, and we're not going to be able to get through it all. So really, for the sake of time, I'll just read the first 35 verses. Next Lord's Day, uh, we'll consider the second half of the chapter. Uh, But uh, let us once again at this time give ear to the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me. And changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to them, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me 
and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Laban answered and said, or Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of, of the f- two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word, for the truth and the power that it conveys. We pray, O Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, that you would, uh, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Oh, beloved Lord, when uh, Rebecca warned her son Jacob to flee to Padam Aram from the wrath of his twin brother Esau, she said that he should go there and stay there a while. Literally in the Hebrew, it stayed there a few days until his brother Esau forgot about what he had done to him in tricking his father and stealing the blessing, until Esau was willing to forgive his brother, and then Rebekah said that she would call Jacob back from, uh, from the land of Padam Aram. Well, Re- Rebekah's uh, uh, picture of the situation may have been a bit optimistic, to think that Jacob would only be gone a few days, to be gone you know, just a very brief amount of time. Surely that was a rosy prediction. But I don't think anyone at that point would have ever thought that the time in which Jacob would spend in exile, living in the land of Haran uh, the, uh, under his, uh, the control of his uncle Laban, would be 20 years. 20 long years living in exile under the controlling and manipulative uncle Laban. The first 14 of those years were spent laboring uh, uh, for Laban so, so that he would get not one, but two of his daughters as a wife. This was twice as long as he anticipated and more than he bargained for. Last week, we saw how he spent the last, of those, uh, the last six of those 20 years working yet again another term for his uncle Laban, and yet it was through, through these last six years that he was greatly enriched. He was able to grow his own flock through, uh, uh, through the Lord's blessing, but also through this uh, strategic breeding uh, uh, initiative, he was able to grow his own flock 
of speckled, spotted, and discolored uh, sheeps and goats as, as his own flocks grew stronger and stronger and his uncle Laban's flocks grew weaker and weaker. Well, that's what we saw as that transfer of the blessing from Laban was then transferred to Jacob. Our passage picks up in chapter 31, where Jacob begins to hear what his brothers-in-laws are saying. Those, uh, the, the sons of Laban who are looking at Jacob's flocks growing stronger and stronger, and Laban's flocks growing weaker and weaker, and they're beginning to point the finger and, and voicing their resentment at this uh, remarkable turn of luck. Jacob has stolen all that was our father's. Everything that he has has come from our father's, uh, from our father. And so here you see this resentment that is starting to creep in and then voicing that in Jacob, getting, uh, catching wind of this. Laban as well is beginning to feel this way. And so we see in verse 2 that Jacob sees that Laban does not regard him with favor as he once did. Not that he ever was, uh, was kind to him, but But uh, you may recall that Laban considered Jacob an asset. He recognized that Jacob was the source of blessing. He was the one who brought all of this prosperity to him. And yet, as he saw his flocks dwindle and Jacob's increase, Jacob no longer was viewed as an asset, but now a rival, uh, whom he needs to put down and perhaps even try to take his possessions away from him. And with no family of his own to come to his defense, Jacob is in a particularly vulnerable position. And so this is high time for him to get out of Dodge. And providentially, this is exactly when the Lord appears to him in verse 3 and addresses him and tells him, it is now time to leave. It is time to go back. It is time to depart uh, Padam Aram and, and, and go back to Canaan. You may recall when Jacob first set out uh, to the land of Padam Aram, fleeing his brother's wrath, the Lord appeared to him in a, in a dream on the first night of his journey at Bethel. And he promised to him, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so here we see the Lord making good on that promise appearing to him and saying, now it is time. I've been with you these last 20 years. I'm going to be with you in the journey. It is now time to return to the land of your fathers. This language that the Lord uses in verse 3 is very similar to the language that we saw back in chapter 12, where the Lord appeared to Abraham in the same location, In Haran, in in the the land of northern Mesopotamia, the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, I want you to leave the land of your fathers, to leave your kindred and go to a land that I will show you. And now the Lord is appearing to Jacob in the same rough location. And yet, instead of saying, I want you to leave your fathers, he says, I want you to return to your fathers. So instead of going from, he is going to the land uh, that he had promised him. And as Jacob now departs with his family, with the the budding uh, 12 tribes of Israel, with his 11 sons and daughter, as he's leaving this land, Israel now, this uh, little mini uh, budding nation, will retrace the steps of their forefather according to the flesh, Abraham. And so really, what, the, the way we ought to see this is a mini exodus. 
as, as this little uh, nation, uh, the little family, which will become a nation, is leaving exile and entering into the land of promise. Of course, once a nation, they will do this yet again, retracing their forefathers' footsteps as they leave Egypt uh, to return to the land of Canaan centuries later. Well, before departing, before going off on his journey, Jacob now has the task to ensure that his wives are on board before leaving their father's house. He wants to make sure that, uh, uh, that, they, that they are with him on this and they're not going to side with their father. This is, uh, this is very similar to when Rebekah was called by Abraham's servant to come to the land of Canaan to marry Isaac. They, she was asked, will you go with this man? And she says there in verse 24, or chapter 24, she says, I will go with him. And so here, Leah and Rachel face a similar decision. Will they go with Jacob? Will they leave what is familiar to them to a land that they have not seen? Will they trust their husband and the God of their husband? Or will they stay with what is comfortable with, uh, with uh, her, their father? And, having, uh, and, and you'll notice that uh, Jacob actually has this family conference out in the field where he is keeping his sheep and goats, no doubt to ensure that no one else would be listening in. Uh, They're doing this under the veil of secrecy, lest his uncle Laban find out. And as Jacob tries to convince his wives that it is in their best interest to go with him rather than siding with their father, he has to walk a very delicate line. Those of you who are married, you know this particular challenge that whenever you're speaking of your in-laws... You have to be very careful with the words you use, right? You, you can say anything you want about your own parents. But as soon as anyone else says something about your parents, you say, wait, that's my father you're talking about there, right? So here Jacob needs to be careful. He needs to, to show how Laban has been unjust without trash talking. And so he starts off with what is uh, pretty clear and obvious to all. He, he says to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. I mean, this is plain. This is undeniable. This is something that everyone would notice. But then he says, but the God of my father has been with me. You'll notice that after each instance of injustice that Jacob describes, he counters with an affirmation that God was with him with his protective presence. Your father does not regard me with favor anymore, but the God of my father has been with me. Your father has cheated me this ten, these ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me, harm me. If he said this, God would do that. And so here he, he counters each instance of injustice that Laban has, has brought against him with the fact that God has been there to counteract, to reverse, to subvert the efforts, uh, the, the, the malicious efforts of his uncle Laban. When he says that uh, his uncle Laban uh, has cheated him ten times, perhaps we have here an instance, a, a bit of a hyperbole, but also perhaps not. It is very uh, likely that in the, in the course of 20 years that Uncle Laban has changed his wages, cheated him at least ten times. We do this, uh, except we use a number much higher, right? Oh, I've done that a million times, right? Uh, the idea here is that it is, he, he is a complete cheater, a complete scoundrel, uh, he is constantly trying to, to renegotiate things to his advantage. And we, I think we see an example of that in verse 8, where he says, if, the spot, if he had said, the spotted shall be your wages. You may recall the original deal some six years prior is that Jacob said, all the spotted, all the speckled, 
and all the discolored sheep and goats will be mine. And, and as, uh, as the Lord continued to bless Jacob, uh, having all of the strong, healthy sheep and goats be spotted or discolored, thus belonging to Jacob, it seems as if Laban each year would try to negotiate, renegotiate that. Did I say the speckled? I meant the spotted will be yours. But what would happen? Whatever he said would be, uh, whatever he said changed it to, the Lord would make that, uh, that would be what was born. And so the Lord constantly subverting the efforts of Laban and ultimately taking away his livestock and giving them to Jacob. And then he goes on, Jacob recounts to his wives in verse 10 this dream that he must have had some six years prior, this dream that he received of the angel of the Lord appearing to him, where he disclosed to him how it is that he would grow his flock through selective breeding uh, for the striped, spotted, and mottled sheep and goats. And so we, we saw this last week as as uh, we had this strange arrangement where Jacob went through uh, this selective breeding process to grow his own flocks, we see here, finding out now, it was through divine inspiration. It was the angel of the Lord who said, see, it is the spotted, the speckled, the mottled sheep and goats that will be yours. And as Jacob tells his wives of this dream, he then tells them of the second part of the plan, Having grown and amassed his wealth and his flocks, now it comes time for the moment of decision. The second part of the plan is found in verse 13, and it is the escape. Where he says there, where the Lord appeared to him, the angel of the Lord says, I am the God of Bethel. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. This is the moment of decision for the two sisters. I was considering, uh, I was trying to put myself in Jacob's sandals as I was considering this passage, and there's many, been many times where I've had a conversation with my wife about an important uh, decision we would make, and I just thought how much more complicated it would be if I had another wife than there, right? <laughs> so you're not dealing with one person, you're dealing with two, and just imagine how difficult that would be, just yet another reason why polygamy is a bad idea how difficult it would be to have an important decision-making uh, you know, conversation with not one, but two wives. But thankfully, and probably by the Lord's grace, certainly by the Lord's grace, both sisters agree, and both sisters are on board. They speak with one voice. As we see here in verse 14, they say, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? We see here that both sisters feel exactly the same way that Jacob did. Laban has cheated them too and treated them as mere objects for his own personal gain. They, they, they speak as if they've been treated like slaves being sold into this arrangement. And we saw that ultimately how Laban treated his daughters, and switching one daughter for the next and using them as pawns in order to enrich himself. And they feel slighted by that. Uh, they, they, they feel as if uh, their father has taken all of, of what is rightly theirs. You see, in the ancient world, it was very common uh, for, a bro- for a groom to pay what was called a bride price, money or gifts that would be given to the father of the bride in return, uh, uh, to, to, in return for the bride. And that's what Jacob did. He didn't have any money of his own, so that's why he said he would work for seven years and ended up working for 14 years. All of the increase of that 14 years of labor went directly to Laban. 
But there was also, it was common for the father then to give a portion of that bride price back to the bride, and that was called the dowry. And yet here it, is, it seems clear that Laban did not give that to his daughters, but kept it all for himself. And that's why they say, our father has devoured all of our money. And so they feel justified that ultimately God has taken away from Laban's flocks and, and bestowed it upon Jacob as he increased over the last six years. And so they are completely on board with, uh, with their husband. They say, whatever God has told you to do, do it. Now, no sooner had he gotten the thumbs, the thumbs up from his wives that Jacob springs into action. You'll notice there uh, in verse 17, Jacob, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. Here we see this, he, him just rushing to get out of this area. And he's putting them on the camels and sending them off. But then, but then we see the process kind of slow up a bit as we're told all that Jacob has to pack. He drove away all of his livestock, all of his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possessions that he had acquired in Padam Aram. You'll notice uh, a, a contrast here. From when Jacob fled to Padam Aram, he was single. And when you're single, it's really easy to get up and go. You can leave just like that. But as soon as you get married, and as soon as you have kids, Keep in mind here, he has not one but two wives, and he has 11 kids. You'll notice how slow things are. Many of you can relate, even this morning, as you're getting ready for church, how slow it is. And so here, he's doing all that he can, loading everything up on camels, packing it all up. This was no small effort, and yet they are able to get away. You'll notice here that, uh, that uh, Jacob chose this time very strategically. You'll notice verse 19 that he chooses his time of departure uh, to coincide with the time in which Laban would be away shearing his sheep. This was an extremely busy time, the, most, the busiest time of the year for shepherds, where he, where he would be completely devoted to shearing the sheep. All the men in his, in his company would be away shearing these sheep, and it would detain them. Of away from home for some time. And so this buys time for Jacob to be able to get away. Ultimately, it buys him three days uh, uh, as, as he sets out with his family to flee. And yet another member of his family, his beloved wife, Rachel, also took advantage of this opportunity, her father's absence, to steal his, her father's household gods. The Hebrew word here is teraphim, and it likely refers to idols or perhaps figures of their ancestors. These, are, uh, uh, the, these would range in size for something small enough for Rachel to hide in a camel's uh, saddle to big, to big enough to, uh, to fool Saul's henchmen as, uh, as his daughter Michal put uh, the teraphim in the bed to trick the soldiers to think that David was sick in bed. And yet she steals, uh, the, the, uh, we're told that she stole these household gods or the teraphim, but we're not told why. We're not told her motivation. And many, uh, many commentators and scholars have debated this. Some have suggested she's stealing these because the, these would represent hereditary rights, that she would be uh, taking uh, you know, what, was, what she felt was rightly hers. Others suggest that she's taking these uh, in order to increase fertility. Keep in mind, she was barren for so long, and she desired another child. Some have suggested she's taking these as a good luck charm. 
But regardless of her motivation, we do not know. One thing is for sure, we see here in Rachel lingering pagan beliefs. She was willing to go with Jacob. She was willing to say, whatever the God of your fathers told you to do, do it. But we also see her wanting to take a little piece of home, a little bit of the pagan practices and keeping that with her and close to her heart. And as we'll find out in chapter 35, she wasn't alone. Chapter 35, there's a time where Jacob needs to tell his entire household to put away the foreign gods, to put away all of those things that they had uh, imported from Padam Aram so that they could worship the living and true God. And yet this single act of Rachel will almost jeopardize the entire escape plan and, as we'll see, will almost cost her her life. We're told that Rachel stole the household gods of her father. We're also told that Jacob tricked his uncle Laban. And and literally the Hebrew here, if you have a King James, you'll see, literally it is he stole the heart of his uncle Laban. So Rachel stole the teraphim. Jacob stole the heart of his uncle Laban. And ultimately what, what I think the idea here is, is that he's depriving Laban of his ability to control the situation by tricking him by leaving without telling him. He's, he's, he's robbing him of that opportunity. And, so, and, and ultimately, as we'll see, this is why Laban is most irate. He, he, feels, he feels defrauded by, his, uh, by Jacob's actions. Verse 21, we're told that Jacob is able to cross the Euphrates River with all that he had, thus leaving the land of Mesopotamia and setting his course toward Gilead, which would ultimately be the eastern frontier of the land of Israel. After three days, we find that Laban discovers what Jacob had done. He gathers a posse and he pursues Jacob for seven days. Keep in mind the original audience of the book of Genesis. It is the Israelites who have just fled each slavery in Egypt, and you may recall that they were able to get away. But it wasn't long before Pharaoh and his hosts came marching after them. And that should remind you of this. So this really, as I said, is a mini exodus with Laban, who is the, the controlling taskmaster, Uh, sort of like a pharaoh with his kinsmen coming after them, pursuing them with the military pursuit. And you could just tell that he is fuming. And they pursue them for seven days, which puts Jacob and his company ten days into their journey, making great time coming to uh, what, uh, what would become the land of Gilead. But the night before their encounter, as Laban is closing in, as he's breathing down Jacob's neck, God appears to Laban in a dream, and he warns him. He says, guard yourself that you not say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And we may wonder, well, what's that supposed to mean? Well, this is a figure of speech that I think is best understood to suggest that God is telling Laban, you shall not pursue Jacob legally. You shall not press your charges against him. There's, a, I think, legal connotations here. So in other words, what, what's happening is God is tying Laban's hands. There's nothing he can do. This is what he said back in chapter 24, when Abraham's servant had come to them and had spoken of God's miraculous providence in bringing Rebekah to the well and answering this prayer 
uh, and, and ultimately, when, when they say, when he asks, can we have J- uh, Re- uh, Rebecca? Laban says, well, this is of the Lord. Our hands are tied. We can't say anything good or bad. And I think that's the idea here, is the Lord is basically tying Laban's hands. Be careful not to say anything to him, good or bad. Well, I'll leave it up to you to determine whether Laban stayed within the confines of God's warning. But ultimately, it is, this is key, this is crucial, that the night before, God appears to him and warns him. And we see the encounter in verse 26. 20 years of hostility, 20 years of sort of under-the-surface tensions are now going to boil over as we have a direct encounter, a direct conflict between Laban, who is just irate that Jacob has fled, and Jacob, who is trying his best to get away. We see, starting in verse 26, Laban's impassioned speech is really a series of accusations. And ultimately, the main crime that he's being charged with is the crime of theft. You stole from me. You stole from me. He starts off in verse 26 by saying, you have tricked me, which literally is you've stolen my heart. And then he says, you stole my daughters. You've carried them away like captives with the sword. And then he says, you've stole my opportunity to say goodbye to my sons, uh, to my grandsons and to my daughters. As Laban is, is just you know, having this tirade against Jacob, we can't help but smirk a bit to consider how ultimately ridiculous some of Laban's claims were. Right? He speaks of this, this fact that he had this great relationship with his daughters and he, you know, he didn't get to kiss them goodbye. And, and, and the fact that he says, you, you stole my daughters as captives from the sword, all the while us knowing that they were willingly going with Jacob. Right? They wanted to go. And he's speaking as if they were, uh, they were captives in this. He speaks of this, uh, him being robbed of this opportunity to throw a going away party. Right? He says, I could have thrown a, a wonderful going away party. I could have sent you off with mirth and with, uh, with, uh, uh, with dancing and songs and tambouring and lyre. All the while, us remembering the last time Uncle Laban threw a party, things didn't go so well, right? The, the wedding night uh, party. And so all, the, all of these uh, accusations and these claims that Laban makes ultimately uh, are empty. Uh, we, we know that, that uh, all of these things... Uh, it, it, we, we can smirk and laugh because ultimately he has no grounding in what he's saying. And in a not-so-veiled threat in verse 29, he says, it is in my power to do you harm. Keep in mind, uh, Jacob, with just women and children, is completely defenseless. And yet here we have Laban with his kinsmen having a, a military-style posse hunting after them. He says, it is within my power. I am a superior military force. And yet, although Laban could and perhaps would do harm, we see that God intervened. And so that's that key turning point right there. Yet of all the accusations that Laban says, you stole my heart, you stole my daughters, you stole my opportunity to say goodbye, it is the last accusation, which is tacked on in verse 30, that must have come from left field. Something that Jacob hadn't anticipated. Something that is almost an afterthought and yet is the most serious of all the accusations. Why did you steal my gods? Why did you steal my gods? If Jacob had stolen Laban's household gods, this would have been a completely defenseless act. There there, there would have been no explanation for it. And if he was caught, 
with Laban's household gods, then that would have been a serious crime and a serious legal charge that Laban could have brought against Jacob. So in verse 31, we see Jacob's initial response. It's short, but he does not deny that they fled in secret, but he seeks to justify his actions with extenuating circumstances. He says, I was afraid. Our history together has given me good reason to believe that you would not have let me go uh, uh, unharmed. It's interesting, Laban accused Jacob of stealing his daughters, but Jacob counters saying, well, I thought you were going to steal my wives. I was afraid. I was afraid you were going to take my family from me, and so I I left in secret. And yet to this other charge, the charge of stealing the household gods, Jacob uh, uh, then uh, addresses that and rashly pronounces the death penalty for whomever is found with the idols, not knowing that at that moment he was sentencing his beloved wife to death. And here we have sort of the dramatic turn. This is the dramatic climax of this escape plan. Because if Laban at this point is able to find the household gods, then as I said, the the entire escape is foiled. And also, more seriously now, heightening the stakes is whoever is found with these gods is now going to be put to death, which is, as we all know, is Rachel. Although Jacob, at this point, does not know this. So in verse 33, with the heightened suspense now, Laban begins his search, and it's, it's wonderful how Scripture relays this to us. It really gets us on the edge of our seat, because, of course, he starts by searching Jacob's tent. It's Jacob he suspects most, so he goes first into Jacob's tent, and then he goes in to the other tents, and he's, he's searching all of the tents that we, as the reader, knows he's not going to find the gods. And ultimately, as he goes to Leah's tent and doesn't find them there, he leaves that, and he goes into Rachel's. Last but not least, the place we know where the household gods are residing. And instinctively, we're told that Rachel took those idols, the household gods, and put them in her camel's saddle. This would be a box-shaped saddle that would be set on top of the camel, but also would, would serve as a storage box. And so she throws those gods in there and sits on top of the saddle as her father enters into the tent. As Laban enters the tent, he begins to feel around. This is the same Hebrew word that is used back when Jacob had his father, Isaac, feel uh, the the goat's fur on his hands and on his neck to deceive his father. Yet again, another instance of a a father being deceived within a tent through the, the sense of touch. And now Rachel, it's now, except it is not Jacob who's doing the deceiving, but his wife, Rachel. It's her turn to deceive the father, and she does it in a distinctively feminine manner. She says, forgive me, father, I cannot rise, for the way of woman is upon me. She's going through her menstrual cycle. I, uh, you know, I, I can't get up at this point. And it's, it's interesting how she's able to do this. Uh, a, a woman is able to deceive the, the arch-deceiver, Laban himself, uh, uh, by using this uh, distinctly feminine manner uh, one commentator says a woman would have simply checked, a man would not have dreamed of trying. As Laban is feeling around, oh, don't, don't worry, dear, I'm, I'm just look, I'm searching for something, uh, I'll, I'll be out of here soon, I'll be out of your hair. The ancient Israelites would also 
consider these, uh, these household gods completely defiled since later on in the law, anything coming into contact with a woman during her menstrual cycle would be rendered ceremonially unclean. And implicitly and brilliantly, Scripture has rendered these so-called household gods completely powerless as they were unable to make themselves known as Laban, their, uh, their owner, was looking for them. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. And ultimately, as, as Psalm 115 says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So here we see Laban as he's feeling about uh, in, in this tent, unable to find what he seeks. Laban, like these, uh, like these idols, is rendered blind and unable to find what he seeks. His hands are tied from harming Jacob and foiled by his own daughter, whom he had used years before in a ploy to enrich himself. And so this is really Laban's lowest point, where all that he had done before is now coming back upon him. He himself is being deceived. He himself is, is, is being blinded like these idols that he searched for. And so here we see the Lord turning the tables yet again on crooked Uncle Laban. And he will do this yet again in the Exodus. As, as, as I mentioned, this being a mini-Exodus foreshadows what the Lord will do on a grander scale as he rescues his people from slavery with a mighty arm and foils uh, Pharaoh and his hosts. And yet again, he will do it yet, he, he, he will do it yet again in redemptive history as the people of God find themselves in a very similar situation that Jacob found himself in, living in exile in Mesopotamia because of their sin. And it was to those people that the prophet Isaiah spoke to. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41, perhaps even reflecting upon this episode in our passage today, he looks forward to a time in which the Lord will return his people from exile. And you may... I think it's it's right for us to assume that there would be a lot of fear and trepidation and, and uncertainty about whether their journey home from exile would be safe. And it is to those people that the prophet Isaiah says, uh, echoes the words of the Lord by saying, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing. And shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So even as the Lord was faithful to bring Jacob and his family from exile, from the clutches of his uncle Laban to the land of promise, he promised that he would do that yet again with his people in restoring them from exile. And ultimately, he continues to do that in the new covenant as Jesus Christ, who who, uh, who 
ultimately did the ultimate exodus in redeeming us, not from earthly bondage, but from the tyranny of sin and Satan, he continues to gather his, his elect from exile. And he continues to do that to, uh, for us today. And so these words of Isaiah are for us today. As the Lord will gather us to our heavenly homeland, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Amen.